0: Thank you for joining us for Market Conversations, I'm Natalie Pearson from the City of Melbourne. The Council is currently leading the $250 million renewal of the iconic Queen Victoria Market, the largest infrastructure investment in the City of Melbourne's history. Through the five-year renewal program, we want to retain and restore the Queen Victoria Market's heritage, while also improving facilities for traders, customers and our visitors. Everything we do is about ensuring the market is viable for future generations. To coincide with the World Union of Wholesale Markets Congress, held in Melbourne Australia in October 2017, we've recorded a short series of podcasts. As part of the conference, several international market experts visited our city. We took the opportunity to talk to them about their own experiences in market renewal. In this podcast, I'm talking to Donald Hislop, the Chair of Trustees at Borough Market, which is London's oldest food market. The market's charitable trust is responsible for shaping its strategic direction and ensuring its survival as a community asset. Donald became a member of the board in 2007 and Chair of the board in 2011. Thanks for joining us, Donald, and welcome to Melbourne. You've been to Melbourne before, though, haven't you? I believe this is your 16th visit?
1: Yes, I'm a serial offender, regular, regular visitor.
0: It's home to you now, I understand.
1: Absolutely. I I mean, I, I made a connection the first time I came Uh, Came to Melbourne and Sydney the first time and I've had a great connection through work and through friends that I've made along the way. So it's always a pleasure to come back and see the changes. And gosh, there are a lot of changes happening in your cities at the moment.
0: That's correct. It is a city undergoing some dramatic change. Let's talk about the borough market in your hometown It has a long and fascinating history. It's been around for a thousand plus years. Is it possible to give us a little history overview or maybe just break it down into the key milestones?
1: I mean, you're right. It's uh, a thousand years there's been a market in that part of London. It's it's situated on the banks of the, the River Thames in what is central London now, but actually... Um, in the early days was outside the formal city the, the the gate to the city was on the other side of the river so a market had sprung up there and we know it's a thousand years old because uh, a Viking uh, chronicled it in a document as he came to invade London I think rather than to um, shop he observed that there was a, a collection of stalls and markets at, at this point point. Um, and it has been there through through war and plague and fire and Politics and pestilence and and indeed terror, which we had uh, earlier this year. So it's gone through many, many different transformations. But I think the one constant thing about it is that it's been a community asset and something incredibly valuable to the city. So in its modern manifestation, it was... uh, In 1754, it was enshrined by an act of parliament that there should be a market there because the market that had existed before had been closed down because it was spilling over the road and it was um, disrupting traffic into the city, so they closed it down. But the community petitioned for the establishment of a formal market. Um, which is the still the statute that we work under today. So it was very much a community-inspired market and still has a community at its centre.
0: So tell us about the market in 2017. What's the market known for these days and, mm-hmm. and what it makes it special and unique?
1: Well, in, in its latter history, it was a, a wholesale market. As many markets, after the Second World War, it fell into a wholesale was moving out to the edges of cities. And really in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was a rundown and the trustees, it's a charity, had had to start selling a couple of buildings. wasn't working and three or four uh, pioneers that we call them now asked if they could set up tables on a Saturday morning and sell some produce that they brought up from the country. One was a coffee seller, but then there was cheese and meat Um, and dairy and from that very small beginnings in the late 90s it has grown to what is a very vibrant hugely well attended and uh, influential market now with 158 uh, traders from all over the world trading to 12 million visitors coming every year and that's in less than 20 years from Almost out of the game to a rejuvenation done through primary produce, high quality food, and um, bringing together like-minded people.
0: That's an incredible transformation. You first started on the board in 2007. Can you talk us through some of the changes while you've been on the board?
1: Well, we've had two or three, even in in, in this short period of its of its long history. Um, the market, as I say, is right in the centre of London is between two of the main stations that connect to the south of England. the, the railway viaducts around there cr- crisscross across the market and they have needed to be renovated and extended to for the rail capacity coming in to, uh, to London. So the, one of the reasons I came on the board was we basically had to take the market apart and then put it back together again, working with architects. So we have a Victorian glass roof, we had a main market hall, um, which had to be dismantled piece by piece, stored for several years um, out in the countryside. And then we had to move the traders around and keep the market operating on temporary, on our car park, on temporary sites. And we never lost a, a day's trading during that time. But that was a massive undertaking both in engineering and in keeping the market and the business alive.
0: That's a huge project and it seems like such a a large undertaking. How did you guide the traders through that process?
1: Well, I think what a good market authority is, of course, they have to lead and they have to provide vision. But what we are mainly there to do is provide the infrastructure the facilities and the amenities to allow the artisans, the traders, to flourish. They are the stars, they are the people that the public need to engage with, um, and they are what give the theatre and the drama to the... Uh, to the market. I work in my day job in a museum. That's exactly the same rationale. We provide the facilities for the artists and the artists' work to shine through and, and, and interact with people. So that was a Herculean task, how we could give people enough of the f- enough basic facilities and the template to keep going. So it, uh, it was a huge jigsaw puzzle, puzzle all the time, uh, relocating people, making sure visitors could find them, uh, running education programs and making sure that uh, we, we maintained and helped the loyalty of our customers who came throughout that whole time.
0: Well, let's talk about that, the journey of the customer through this process as well. Did you set it up for them that this was going to be a quite a long period of change? How did you walk them through this process?
1: Sorry, I was going to use a terrible cliche, which is we're on a journey with our community and with our customers, but that's true. That's true. They are part of the success. Part of the success of Borough Market was that people took a bit of a risk, tried something different. It wasn't planned. It was quite organic. Uh, And it caught the public imagination. And there were strong relationships formed between uh, the public and the traders. And um, it's allowing people to cement and build on those relationships. Obviously now millions of tourists come as well, but there is the core relationship with the shoppers. And it's a very delicate ecosystem. So all of the time you're thinking about um, how you can maintain that. And I think one of the things we've done quite successfully is we have a very big investment in more laterally, social media, but also in marketing, in communication, in profiling, uh, not just the people who work there and the products, but the interaction with the public and and, and shoppers.
0: There's uh, more of an outwards focus to the market these days, and and the borough market has its own podcast even, and it feels like you're really trying to connect the visitor and the customer back to the trader and creating that personal connection and, and bringing back this understanding of where their food is coming from. Was that a deliberate decision to walk down that path or was it organic? I think
1: it came with the territory. The people who were originally doing it were fairly evangelistic. They believed in what they were doing and people who produce and are involved in primary production food tend to be like that. It's a labour of love and they wanted to show that. And in the early days I remember they actually were, you know, telling stories. There was exhibitions there of the of the goods or the animals. So that dialogue that central dialogue between the traders and the the customers and the visitors is is important. And that's what makes... There's a number of things which make markets different than anywhere else and certainly different than supermarkets or other ways that online that we source our food is that you can have that conversation and you can have that narrative and that educational um, process around your food as part of the experience of the market. And that was fairly unique in Britain believe it or not in the in the early 2000s and then Jamie Oliver the celebrity chef and he did a very one of his first series all the time he was hopping on his scooter and going down there to Borough and talking to the traders and then sourcing the goods and cooking and I think um that had a catalytic effect and you see these sort of markets emerging all over Britain but what we've done I think quite successfully is maintained that ethos. The extension of that now, the position now is that we are we still have a very high um, profile and brand um, worldwide. And uh, we're recognised as a centre for excellence. And what we're determined to do is build on that. So now, as well as that conversation between the primary producer and the customer, we're now moving into much projects and thinking much more about the future of food, markets as urban laboratories, education um, projects around the curriculum, uh, plastic, banning the use of plastic, all of those sort of things. So we still feel that we can be a barometer and opening up discussions about what, what's the next thing, what's the next What's connection. the next trend? Yeah. And
0: earlier this year you banned plastic bottles in the market. What led to that decision?
1: I think it's, it's something we've been thinking about. Obviously you can't, you know, live in the modern world without understanding the environmental um, issues that we face As a planet, and you know, again, I'm very much a believer of um, small actions together can can make change. Sometimes you can feel overwhelmed and bewildered by the sort of enormity of the the things we face, but um, sometimes small initiatives can have much bigger impacts. And um, we had talked about this for a while, and we thought it was a good time, especially after we'd had a we'd had a the terrorist attack earlier in the year, and. You know, we'd had lots of media, but for the wrong reason. And we thought it was time to sort of come back to what we're best at. So we announced that our intention to make the market plastic-free within the next year. And as part of that process, to start with... uh, banning plastic bottles in the market but not just making a statement giving people the tools to do something about that so we've reintroduced water fountains into the market and you can buy a bottle for life or bring your bottle and fill it up um, in the market and that got a huge amount of publicity it's an it's an it's an old idea with a new twist because water fountains used to be all over our cities but I think our profile allowed us to get a lot of media for that and in fact what's happening is a number of companies and workplaces uh, have followed it by making public declarations so a great example of a just a small thing that's spreading a bit as for us is seen as a as a leader with some integrity.
0: Absolutely just bringing it back to the the basic ideas isn't it you mentioned the terrorist attack. Sadly, the borough market was in the international press earlier this year. The market, if you look at a map, almost looks like the shape of a heart. And so you've mentioned that it was like a heart attack. Yeah. How did you cope in the aftermath and how did you support the market traders through that period?
1: So that's right. I, I, I very much to use the analogy of a heart attack. So that really required two things, which was the, the sort of Immediate medical attention and surgery, and then much longer care and attention to nurse and back to health. so it's a it's a a pretty you know it's a a thing you you can train for security incidents and that, but until it happens, you don't really know and it affects people in in different ways. The core market was actually shut at the time but there's a lot of cafes and restaurants all around. We own a lot of those. So there was lots and lots of people out enjoying um, a Saturday night. Um, and unfortunately, as you know, people lost their lives and um, a lot of people were injured, but a lot of people were caught up in it. And indeed, the space was uh, sort of violated, if you like. There was these terrible things happened in the market. There was gun- There was ammunition discharged by the police. There was all of that. So that's... Uh, quite an intricate thing to try and think about and manage. In the first instance, people were locked out of the market for, uh, for the best part of 10 to 12 days. So that was a lot of single traders, small businesses, who were seeing their business, understanding why it had to be closed, but seeing their businesses um, disappear. And then there was the process of reclaiming and trying to remake the space as what it's intended to be, which is a social place for, shopping and exchange and all of those um sort of things and then once the media and all the spotlights gone away there's a, a longer process which we're in now which is rebuilding and reclaiming and rearticulating what the market needs to be and bringing uh the customers and the visitors back which Thankfully, they have been coming back.
0: I'm glad to hear that. We often talk about the community within the market environment. Do you feel like that was a really strong um, example in the aftermath, that the community really came together to support each other?
1: Yes, I think a, a very strong sense of that. In fact, the, you know, I, I was in one of the bars a couple of weeks ago and the staff were still wearing a Stand Together T-shirts, which was sort of the... the, the the slogan of the of the traders and people came together i mean some of them and, and some of our people who work in the bars and restaurants were actually involved in it you know and did some of them did really heroic things including one of the bakers there's a bakery there that was obviously baking at night who helped people and hid people in 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 there so there's uh there was a great solidarity and and you know i think part of the the dynamic of a market is you have always have a little bit of tension between traders because they're in business competing and also against us who run the market and the trader and that is right it has to be that but if there's one thing that maybe has has come out of it, it it did it has brought the community closer together and of course there's people living around and in, in amongst the market as well so there's a residential community so we've and in thinking about going forward we we are talking a lot more as a community. And I think we still, we feel bound by Borough because we love it, but we feel bound by what happened as well.
0: New York City has the high line and the Borough Market has the low line. Can you talk to us about that project?
1: Yeah, it's not just Borough, but it's a, it's a, one of the great things about uh, the part of London I work in. And I told you before, I work for Tate Modern, which is very close to Borough Market. And there's been a huge change in that whole part of London over the last twenty years, and food, through the market and culture, through places like the Tate, have driven that change. You know, it's not big property developers. All of that's come—the Shard and other things—but the market and the, the museum, and um, were there before. But as I said to you before, the place is crisscrossed by these railway lines, um, all across the area. Now they're elevated railway lines and they're all in use but at the bottom they have a series of of railway arches and you can walk along them but they've most of them have fallen into disuse they're a bit dark it's not it's not um, particularly nice so new york came up with the high line we've come up with the low line so we're trying to animate and work with local businesses with the railway authority with the market with others to create these uh, different Walkways and pathways through the city, linking places like the market uh, back to the south, encouraging creative and small businesses, food and coffee and all of those things, but bicycle shops, artisans, artists coming in. So the idea is that turning that obstacle into a gateway really.
0: And activating the space for people to come Absolutely. and visit and walk through.
1: Absolutely. And most people in London sort of orientate towards the river, as we do in most, you do, in, um, of course, in Melbourne and other cities, because it gives you a sense of, you know, where you are. But well, we're trying to encourage people to go back into the urban hinterland, to find different paths and streams, if you look at the city as a forest. And this is very much part of that. So we're in the first phase of that, and it's really... Interesting. The possibilities are endless and it will also allow the market to, to sort of break out from the core zone that it's been in, which is in a dense part of the city.
0: You mentioned before that you have 12 million visitors per year, a staggering amount. Mm-hmm. How do you balance the mix between local customers and tourists?
1: It's the thing that occupies the staff and should occupy us every day because... It's a has to, you have to find a balance. Listen, it is a local community market. It's a market for Londoners, but it inevitably is a place that tourists, when they come to London, want to visit. It's a destination, you know, it's one of the, you know, it's the top thing on TripAdvisor, all of those um, things. So people are going to come. What we have to try and do is maintain the balance. And sometimes it tips over a little bit, I think, too much to the touristic side. And everyone, there's been a big trend the last few years across the world, street food and outdoor catering and all of that is incredibly trendy and that affects markets as well. But that sort of tips to one sort of person really, which is maybe the tourist and the visitor who's not able to do deeper shopping. But the primary producers and the people who sell The food that appeals to shoppers are the most delicate part of the market. So we really are at the moment, once again, thinking about how we put time and energy and and resource into helping them and promoting them.
0: Earlier in the Regeneration Project, there were concerns that the borough market would turn into another supermarket. What steps did you take to maintain that, that character and the authenticity of the market?
1: It was never going to be a supermarket, I don't think, unless... It was moved, and someone built a supermarket on it. I, I, in a sort of strange way, I think of Borough Market as a as a terroir, as a as a place of authenticity um, where something unique and authentic um, happens. So we've really looked to build the what happens there out of that sort of notion it's unique and it's special and you come there and you get products and you get an experience and you get a communication that's different from anywhere else in the world we're also quite lucky that between three charities and the and the church we own 80 percent of the buildings surrounding the market there are a couple of uh private owners and what we've also done is set up a a concordant, set up a coalition of all the landowners to try not to make it a museum not to heritage list it but to look at it as a special space of significance so we rent all of us rent out those buildings um, and we do it at a fairly market rate and that allows us to to support the rest of the market, but we won't let to chains, we won't let to supermarkets, we won't bring in the ones you'll see in every high street in the world because we want to maintain it as a not as a, as a historic, not as a museum, but as a different there's a different way of looking at it and um, so those two things have gone hand in hand, and that's very much a different road than going to the supermarket or to indeed to the Amazon
0: world. Yes, that's right. You mentioned that the market is 80% owned by three charities in the church, so that means that you have a, a charitable um, governance structure that's mm-hmm. quite different to here in Melbourne in that we have the local government authority that owns our site. Do you feel like that's made a difference through this regeneration process?
1: It's, it's fairly uncommon in the UK as well. Most markets are municipal markets run by... The local authorities in cities and towns across Britain and indeed uh, the the big Covent Garden is a government owned market in London so we are quite unique um, and we do we own the charitable trust own the market and we, we own a considerable amount of property and another charity owns property so we are in control of the situation so in on one hand we get criticism of how can you run something like that by committee? But on another hand, we on the other hand, we've got a, a different sort of model for governance, which is driven by our core purpose, which is to run the market, to develop the market, you know, the key values. And that if we do make any surplus, it goes back into that, goes back into the community. And it was set up originally, any um Additional money went in went to the parishioners who lived in the area. So it's still very much part of that philosophy, but in a modern sense, it goes back into the infrastructure and into into the market itself. So we have huge pressure because we're incredibly ambitious, but we're incredibly ambitious about identity and story and uh, uh, and being an exemplar in our world rather than making money for shareholders or or for politicians.
0: So when you look over the last ten years and you have a look at the change that has taken place, is there anything that you would do differently if you had your time again?
1: I think uh, I think I think we went. I think people got a bit carried away by the. Uh, well, people call it street food. I don't actually think most of it is street food. If you want real street food, go to Thailand or go to the Philippines or see what street food is. It's a bit of a pretend. You know, there's this. It's more like it's outdoor catering. Really, it's just a bit more hygienic and and with a bit more um, flair about it. And and don't get me wrong, it works because people go just all over London to various uh, and in cities all over the world. I think we went maybe went down that road a bit too much at the market. Um, and I I was. Part of that, I, b- I believed it gave us an ability to bring workers and other people in at lunchtime and different times, and it was servicing something. It Maybe the balance is, has, has tipped a little bit more. I think you can always think of different things. I think the dialogue between traders and people who run the market and communities is um, important. And we had some big... Um, engineering challenges. And a couple of times there, were because of that, I think the concentration on that, there was a wee bit of falling out between people and you don't like it. But uh, I think the model we've got now is much more about, now we've got the physical space, it's much more about collaboration and conversation.
0: Can we talk about that preservation of the heritage aspects? Were you under strict controls? So working through the regeneration, did you have very strict guidelines to work with?
1: You know, we're still. It doesn't stop this. It doesn't really have a beginning and end. As I said to you, this market has been evolving physically and in culturally for hundreds and hundreds of years. Funnily enough, the heritage is uh, is really important and has certain demands on what you can do. But because it's in and around a railway line, the railway authority has um, has um, powers outside of the heritage um uh, powers so that actually we lost uh, historic buildings um in the process of the regeneration which wouldn't have been no- lost normally and we didn't necessarily want to lose them we, we we had compensation but it was a compulsory purchase by the railway authority so we we there was a lot of negotiation there and we have a great uh, space now uh which is a glass market hall which we've repurposed and we use very much to I think we've used it very, very intelligently. But at the time we were just given, we said, these buildings have to go and this is what you'll be given back. And that could have been um, quite uh, catastrophic. So in a way, we've been the guardians of the heritage and we still... Work very much with it. We've still got 85% of the heritage core there. And it's one of the things that people love about the market that it's dense, that you have to move between different zones, that there's funny little corridors and spaces and historic pubs and all of that. So it's really one of our primary assets. But it doesn't stop us being modern as well.
0: That's right. One of the areas I've, I've seen has quite flexible spaces. You can move in the space of five minutes and it, it be, can become something else. Can mm-hmm. you talk to me a little bit about that area and what your goals for that area were?
1: Well, that's really the reason I came in as a trustee because we bring in uh, trustees and it's very professional now how they're selected from from different skills. So we have a professor of food policy, we have designers, we have finance people. Uh, people involved in property people involved in food production and i came in before i was chair around urban space and architecture partly to to do something with this hall so we were given this glass box which you think well that's uh that's an interesting idea especially when you're selling fresh produce you don't really want a greenhouse as a as a place and then the architects because of the relation to the rail, we wanted to fill this space and wanted to put a railway carriage in or put structures in and everything. But I, we worked with them and we decided to use the scale of what we've got. So we, we've made it a market hall. And actually, customers and people have been telling us and still tell us they want to shop, but they want space to socialise and to sit and to eat and to talk and to... Check their emails or whatever. And we do have free Wi Fi, by the way. Um, so we designed the space around multifunctional use. So we use the verticality, we use vertical planting all around, which is great to oxygenate the area because it's near a busy road and there's a lot of carbon. Went outside, but we were also able to grow there we grow hops and we produce beer and then in the hall itself we wanted that to be a place that people could sit but we also wanted to use it for events for night markets for debates so we worked with uh, brilliant design artisans and we've created a furniture system that has planting in it c- has seating but can be easily adapted into tables into market stalls into umbrellas, and is all mobile. It's on wheels. It's not, you can't just push it. It's, it takes a bit of effort because it's full of soil and plants. But you can rearrange it so we can turn it in from its day use where you can sit and contemplate into circles, into a market, into open for a for a debate or for a, for a social event. And that's proved incredibly popular with the people who use it and also it helps us a bit commercially. We can rent it out. But it's, I think that's what we need with space is we need to be thinking of multiple use for them.
0: Absolutely, using flexible spaces that can adapt to lots of different activities. Here in Melbourne, we're undertaking the renewal of the Queen Victoria market. This is the largest infrastructure investment that the local government authority, the City of Melbourne, is undertaking. What advice would you have for the leaders of this project?
1: It's a tremendous site and a tremendous place. You know, if you were asking me at the outset of this, what would be on my main piece of advice? It would be don't move because it's in such a perfect part of the city. And of course, the city developing around it, but it has been an anchor point for Melbourneans and uh, for people from, from around the world for a long time, and it needs to maintain that. But obviously, as with my market, it, it has to go through different processes of change. It's a huge area. Um, it's a huge number of stalls. I don't know how much change there's been there. There's areas of it that could change. I'm not sure how competitive some of that is in in the modern day. The fresh fruit, the fresh produce is obviously a strong, a very strong um, element of it. And, and the the kiosks with the fish and all that great, absolutely brilliant. And the, the, those can be that infrastructure and that offer. I'm sure with those traders can be developed and um, really um, modernized, if you like. I, 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 my observation as someone, and obviously I don't know it incredibly well, is there's a lot of space that doesn't seem to be particularly well used there. Um, I know it'll be controversial, but there seems to, I don't understand the approach to where vehicles go and where vehicles are parked, and I think where I was seeing rows and rows of uh, vehicles, there's some brilliant opportunities to do some of these these things that I've been talking about in the space. I'm jealous of the amount of space. I think it could be used better both for the people who work there and also for, as an amenity for the city.
0: And following along that same concept, what advice would you have for traders who are experiencing this change and And we will need to move along with us as Mm -hmm. we work through the project.
1: I'm very much a believer in doing things with people, not to them. But people need to be active in participation. It's not just a passive thing as well. So it works both ways. Obviously, in the end, someone owns that market. There's public investment going into it. They want there to be some sort of return. But it, it seems to me it's a market that they want a market for the 21st century, if you want to use a cliche, that can be shaped by the people who run the market and market experts and the people who who work in it and have worked in it and the people who will work in it because I, I very much believe, like an ecosystem, it changes, people come, people go, it, it has ebb and flow and what... Um, Melbourne is not short of, or Victoria's people with ideas and innovation and and technologies, allowing us to think about food and culture and all of these things in lots and lots of different ways. Whether that's making or production, or or the environment, these are all things that could be possible here. It's creating a coalition that feels safe and secure to explore those. I think the fear of the unknown is the is the thing that we all have trouble with in our lives. It sounds very simple, but I think it is about alliances and trying things and exploring what's possible because everything changes.
0: That is the constant change is the constant. Let's come back to the borough market just to close here. What's next for the borough market? What should we expect to see Mm -hmm. in the next couple of years?
1: We had a sort of conference a couple of weeks ago where everyone was invited, the traders and the staff and the trustees, to start to think about the next stage. And uh, a group of the traders went off and did a visioning document about the future and some of the things uh, that could happen. And we've obviously had experts come in and uh, do analysis on the market but out of 158 traders over 90 came now a lot of these people are dispersed all over the country and some of them are producing they're fishing they're producing their goods that they come to market Uh, it's not open every day Thursday Friday Saturday to sell goods so that was a tremendous demonstration of how much they believe in and want to see the market develop so we're in a really interesting phase now which is that that much more joined up discussion. It's been shaped by lots of things that I've talked to you about um, today. Um, and I hope that'll take us to the to the next chapter. And that's all about how we open, when we open, what we sell, what the mix is, how we might expand, how we might um, get involved with markets like this across the world and markets like Queen Victoria, who we have a lot of common in and see if we can learn from each other, from our staff and from our communities.
0: Thank you for joining us, Donald. It's been very interesting to talk to you and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. If you would like more information about the Queen Victoria Market Precinct Renewal Program, you can visit our website at www.melbourne.vic.gov.au forward slash Queen Victoria Market. I'm Natalie Pearson. Thanks for joining us.